Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 3 of The Shed Wireless. Coming up, he was the ultimate Australian man for a time, a world record holder, fearsome and fearless, the great Australian fast bowler, Dennis DK Lilly is our special guest this episode. Our shed in the spotlight is Debra, not far from Brisbane, but a world away, as you will hear. We're going to explore the value of a good laugh. What is it that cracks you up? And Rip Woodchip reckons he's got the formula that'll help you live to be 100. But he might not see out the week if his missus actually listens to this episode. Stay tuned for that. Stuart Torrance talks about where he goes to get a regular giggle. And not one, but two of Australia's, perhaps the world's leading experts are going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know about prostate cancer. It might be the most important few minutes of radio you ever listened to. And if you're like me, I wasn't particularly fussed about the idea of engaging with that topic, but believe me, you'll be glad that you did. All that and a whole lot more ahead in this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney, and we are joined once again by the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, David Helmers. Hello, sir. Hi, Aaron. It's been a while between um, chats, mate. It has. I hope you've got a note from your mum. Where have you been? Uh, yeah, yeah. I quite haven't got the note from my mum, but she'll probably give me one. I've got a. I've probably got a note from our chairman, Paul, mate. I've been very busy the last few weeks. We've been busy with a new funding agreement with the Department of Health. It's all been signed, sealed and executed now. I don't know if it's fair to assume that every single listener understands exactly what that means and the mechanism. So can you just elaborate slightly? Yeah, well, AMSA's core funding provides services to men's sheds comes from the Department of Health federally. So, And it's a, a service agreement. It's a, a contractual process. Yeah, we should be used to it because we've been funded for 10 years now, this year. Mm. But it's still a arduous process. And, you know, once we enter in the funding agreement, there is, you know, deliverable outcomes that the department require. Um, we also take in on board what we see the needs are internally. And through surveying the sheds and a lot of the feedback, every time a shed contacts us, they, as you've heard with the, the Shed Wireless program, they've all got some great ideas and yeah, they highlight their needs, so we take that back to the department as well. And from then on, we get together, which we did last week as a team at, at AMSA with all the staff. We sit down for a couple of days and you know go through all this and put together a, a work plan for the next you know term of the funding agreement and you know for three years of the future. And we've got to put present that to the department as well and get agreements there. And then we um, start actioning all the items. So it's, it's been a busy couple of weeks, mate, and hence that's my that's my excuse for the leave of, leave of absence. Is there a couple of things that you can share from that plan that might be of interest? But the plan itself, once we finalise our strategic plan, we put it up on, on the website um, for everyone to see. But we, we are changing with the needs of the sheds. The sheds are evolving. A lot of our early focus in AMSA was developing sheds and helping sheds establish. And, you know, from in, you know, that 2010 to 2014, 15 period, 
sheds were opening, as we know, at a frightening rate around the country. I think at one stage we were, we were averaging about four sheds per week opening around Australia. Now we've reached a bit of a saturation point. So the sheds are slowing down in opening, so a lot, lot less focus in that area. But we're looking at a lot of the programs to help sheds be self-sustainable. And I don't mean that just in a financial sense, but in a managerial sense and succession planning and looking at you know, the needs of the future. We're also putting some emphasis there on what sheds are going to look like post-COVID. We're expecting that a lot of sheds will probably see a increase in demand on membership. It's unavoidable. We all know unemployment is going to be very high after this is all finished. Possibly younger as well? Exactly. A big, big focus on that. I think we'll see a lot of younger blokes coming down to the shed. And I know in an earlier episode we discussed this, that in some ways that has been more the international experience than the Australian experience previously. So, like, for example, in Ireland, the average shedder is much younger than here. Yeah, and look, the first time I went over to Ireland was just at the end of the global financial crisis. And the noticeable difference in the sheds in Ireland to that in Australia was the age of the members there. They were much, much younger because they had these high unemployment levels. So, and we get a lot of sheds asking, how do we get young, younger members coming along to the shed? So I think the sheds want to embrace that as well. So it's you know, quite complex and it will take a few months yet to get it all sorted out, but um, There'll be a, a, some new and exciting initiatives coming out of AMSA in, in the next 12 months, mate. Excellent. Well, given that schedule in recent times, you've probably needed to go home and have a laugh on occasions. There's a bit of a theme <laughs> of laughter in this episode. What's your go-to for a laugh? I, I love a good laugh. Um, and sometimes if I'm feeling a bit down or a bit stressed, I'll I'll put something on on Netflix or YouTube just to make me laugh. I do like a lot of stand-up comedy and I've got a bit of a dry sense of humour as well. Mm. You know, around the office every now and then I do pull a few gags on people. Um, I think Mel will, um, has been the victim of, of a few of them over the years. But a, a nightly tradition me and my son Billy have is an, of, of a night, last thing we actually do together of a night now is lie in bed and we've got a little TV in his bedroom, and we watch those YouTube videos, you know, they on funny videos, basically. So, like, people falling off skateboards and cats playing pianos and that kind of thing, yeah? Yeah, he, he, he loves people pranking people, and there's a thousand of them to watch. And then, you know, a good 15 minutes every night, you know, cracking up, laughing at these videos in bed, you know, before we turn the lights out. And it's a, it's a lovely way to finish the day. He's got a wicked <laughs> sense of humour. And he's he's the pun king of the world too. He loves a good pun. That's a shitter in the making right there. Yeah, yeah. And it's getting dangerous my house around my house, mate, because he's learnt the value of prank. So at least once a week I'm gonna fall victim to one of his one of his yeah. pranks. And he, as he gets older he's getting much better at it too, mate. There's a whoopee cushion in the mail. Okay. <laughs> I could barely keep a lid on my excitement because when I was Billy's age, I was obsessed with Dennis Lilly. I wanted to be him when I grew up. And mm. it's really interesting experience to talk to somebody who is now in his 70s, believe it or not, but was sort of the epitome of virility and maledom and whatever for a time. Yeah. And how he is in his 70s now. And 
certainly, I think people will observe when they listen to the chat, certainly he is different, but also there's a lot of those core attitudes and values that he's taking into his advancing years. But one of the things that I thought you'd be interested in is he makes a joke. He drinks fine wine now. Didn't drink when he was playing, discovered it in sort of middle age, has become he'd probably resist this description, but become a bit of a connoisseur, right? Certainly somebody who enjoys it and takes it seriously. But he was talking about what used to get drunk in the 70s and he referenced Blue Nun. Did you ever have a, did you ever have a drink of Blue Nun in your life? No, I can't remember the Blue Nun. Black Tower? Black Tower, definitely the Black Tower. I uh, <laughs> remember going to a Chinese restaurant in Maitland with my Mum and Dad every Wednesday night was a family tradition. And Mum and Dad always had a bottle of Black Tower. <laughs> but a um, couple of drinks, the, the cheap wines, because 20s and the late teenage, it was always the, the cost factor. Mm-hmm. And the two that ring a bell for me was the West Coast Cooler. Oh, yes. Didn't they enjoy a moment in the sun? It isn't. Surprisingly, I've seen in the pubs lately, it's making a bit of a comeback. But the other one that not many will probably remember, at the same time there was a drink that came out, and it was a 750ml bottle, and it was called Aussie Cooler. (laughs) And to tell you about the quality of this, it was 99 cents a bottle. (laughs) Targeting the market for whom West Coast was too highbrow, right? (laughs) Uh, yep, and uh, I remember taking a whole carton of West Coast, which cost me a bit under $12, to a party, and I've never had such a headache the next day in my entire life. The other one I do, do you remember having a odd bottle or two of in my younger days was Lambrusco. Do you remember Lambrusco? Can I tell you, it's not that long since I've had one. It still splashes down all right with a bit of Italian, does the Lambrusco? Yeah, I, I probably don't remember a few of those, but I definitely still remember the Aussie cooler headache. <laughs> yeah, well, we could talk about Goon of Fortune as well, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another day. And I feel compelled to say something adult like, uh, please drink responsibly or something, whatever we're supposed to say. (laughs) David, thank you very much. Uh, Let's get on with Season 2, Episode 3 of The Shed Wires. Staying strong. Staying sharp. And staying healthy. With The Shed Wireless. Now, this might be news to one or two of you listening for the very first time, but anyone who has spent any time with the Shed Wireless will soon work out that I love a laugh. In fact, I left the group office environment a little over a year ago, and the only thing that I miss about that is the laughter and the banter that leads up to it, the byplay. But let's be real. Sometimes you have to look pretty damn hard to find something to smile about, especially at the moment, let alone have a good belly laugh about. Well, Stuart Torrance is AMSA's Men's Health Project Officer. Personally, he doesn't like a laugh at all, but we'll see if we can get a smile out of him. Hello, sir. How are we, Aaron? I'm good. I have fond memories of some of our first encounters riding around in the front of your van and uh, you cracking your trademark sense of humour and me gradually working out your trademark sense of humour and laughing and laughing. You do like a a bit of banter and joke, don't you? I I do like to, um, a bit of push and pull, as we call it. (laughs) 
you know, you, you slap me and I'll slap you back uh, and we'll all get on. Generally, I like to start with the negative and finish with the positive, but it might be worth flipping that for this conversation. Let's start with the positive. Why do you think the phrase laughter is the best medicine? Why do you think that has entered the vernacular? What's the value of laughter? Oh, crikey, you've, uh, you've come up with the, the, the big question right from the get-go. You know, Charlie Chaplin said, a day without laughter is a day wasted. Mark Twain, the human race, has one really effective weapon, and that is laughter. And I think we could all sit back and say, well, that's totally true, because when I laugh, I feel a lot better. I can feel the healing going on. And uh, I think to the first time that I actually heard the words laughter is the best medicine do you remember when you heard those first words no i can't actually remember a world where that sort of wasn't a truism can you remember the first time you heard yeah absolutely i picked up a reader's digest (laughs) and and they're all through the reader's digest little snippets laughter is the best medicine on every page i don't think i ever read a full article i always went to the laughter is the best best medicine and had a bit of a giggle they were just little one-line jokes right yeah yeah just just little just just little captures little little thoughts and i i i thought that's fantastic how it makes me feel i, I remember how it picked me up and um i always felt you know a, a little bit lighter a, a, a bit of a bounce in my step and i get that same feeling whenever i i um listen or or watch uh, some kind of comedy, uh, or come across some sun- funny circumstances. I always get a good um, rib tickling out of it. As I mentioned, I like to hardwire it into everything that I do all day, every day. And I've had a few different mm. careers in recent years, and some of them have called on me to be funny as part of the job, and others have been very sober. And I just find that it permeates the entire environment that you are in. If laughter, banter, jocularity is part of the way the people there interact with each other, and I know there's people listening right now going, he's describing our shed. That's exactly what it's like, right? Similarly, I have worked in some office environments, for example, where if you so much as giggled, there'd be 50 death stares at you for disturbing the peace. I really feel that it sets the culture in a place, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. There's there's actually laughter groups yeah. that, that meet all over Australia, um, not pr- particularly now in COVID, but um, that you, you'll see them down in the, in the parks uh, and they'll stand around laughing. It releases a lot of uh, good chemicals um, through our systems. Yeah, and there's a chicken and egg factor as well. Sometimes... You can feel better because you're laughing. Sometimes you're laughing because you feel better. And I think with some of those laughter groups, they almost uh, start it like a mower, don't they? Do the laugh first and and, and, and the positive emotions will come afterwards. Get, get it going and, um, uh, and, and see what happens. And I actually was in a, a conference one time and they came and did a bit of a demonstration. And, hey, at the end of the conference... Uh, at the end of that particular segment of the conference, we did actually feel better and everyone was smiling at one another, 
conversation seemed to flow so much easier. And uh, like you were saying, that that's exactly what happens in the shed. Well, it's funny. A few of the men might be in a different stage of life to me, and they might be doing this with their grandkids. But I've taken to this thing recently where my youngest daughter when she gets stroppy or moody or whatever, she's only five and it's been a tough year to start kindergarten, as you can imagine. Mm. But if she gets in a strop and I meet the strop with a strop, it only escalates. But for example, we've taken to, if she starts whinging, I'll whinge back at her in the form of a song. And then she just can't help herself laughing at it. (laughs) It's exactly that. So she'll go, I'm so bored. And I'll just go, I'm so bored. <laughs> she can't hold her strop, right? She, and, she knows dad's having a dig. <laughs> so you just inject that laughter into the room. Whereas if I meet her negativity with negativity, it escalates into further negativity and we both walk away in a crappy mood. And it's no different in a shed or an office or anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, it it does really take the sting out of the air uh, in any situation. I was actually watching a a comedian on a a program called Dry Bar last night and um, he he was saying how he he grew up in a a really rough neighbourhood and he diffused the situation by being the whitest white guy in the the, uh, black (laughs) neighbourhood. And uh, some of his facial antics, my ribs were aching, my cheeks were bursting, tears were running down my face. Whilst I was in great pain and agony, I I've never felt better. <laughs> yeah, and after that moment when you step out of it and you actually feel there's almost like a tingle over your body, isn't there? And it is, it is like a little drug. You get a little shot of, of feel good. Well, it, it release, uh, releases dopamine, it, uh, adrenaline, serotonin. They, they tell us all these uh, good-feeling chemicals come out and uh, uh, like just swarm our body. We breathe better, difficult situations become easier, uh, our immune system's improved, we become less aggressive, and we reduce our stress, and it's good for our heart, they tell us. So those are all the positives, and I think by and large we'd be preaching to the choir on that. You won't find too many people who argue back saying that they think laughter's no good and they hate it. Mm. That said, we find ourselves, and not everybody listening is in the same situation, whether you're in Europe right now and having one experience, whether you're in Queensland and having another, or WA where things are really positive, or whether you're in Victoria where things are particularly tough again or new south wales where anxiety is building Mm. i'm in a personal wrestle between wanting to know what's going on in the news wanting to know the latest but also making sure that i just don't expose myself to hours and hours and hours of negativity every day because that stuff wears you down it's like water on a rock and i find myself getting very worn down i hesitate to use any language grander than that but you just feel fatigued and and battle weary if you take too much of it in there's a long-winded way of saying you can walk a mile to find a laugh just at the moment can't you oh absolutely absolutely it's one of the reasons i stepped away from wastebook Mm. you know whilst i had uh, and quotation marks flying around in the air here uh hundreds of friends the majority of their comments were very much of a negative nature. Yeah. And I think that's perpetuated in our news. 
what is it? Death leads. If it, if it bleeds, it leads. It, that's that's the one. Slowly but surely, it pecks away at our good mood, and it um, it can really drag you down. So I, I tend to try and stay away. I, I get a, a light dose of the news every couple of days. I'll turn it on and watch just to keep myself up to date. But I, I don't watch, you know, three newscasts every night or something like that. Uh, I, I won't stay on the news uh, channel for, for too long. And, and even when it comes to programs, if the storyline hasn't got a bit of an upbeat to it, I, I tend to turn off and go and do something else, something do something a little more interesting. Funny, two points out of that. One is my wife and I have got in the habit prior to COVID, we would never sit down at night and watch something, but some nights there's nothing else to do. And so, yeah. but I'll often say to her, watch your mood. And she'll go, no, 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 I could handle a drama tonight or something military flavoured or whatever. Yeah. But some nights she'll go, no, I need some saccharin, you know, <laughs> something like and And that is that hunt for a, a bit of positivity. And actually, it'd be good to have a play on The Men's Shed Online to get some suggestions for the movies that always give you a lift. Do you have one front of mind that always gives you a lift? Oh, like I was saying just a minute ago, I, I go to Dry Bar, which yeah. is, is basically just hundreds of comedians. And, and the beauty of Dry Bar is it's, it's a relatively clean there's no swearing in any of the acts so it's family friendly and, and not just swearing it's not it's not highly sexualized or that sort of thing is it it's pretty much the it's the humor you'd tell at christmas lunch a lot of the time yeah and i tell you what some of these comics are extremely clever and it makes me wonder sometimes why they actually do use foul language in in others because what these guys are doing is absolutely fantastic i, I think of an australian comedian uh, ostentatious with his australiana yes that was an absolute phenomenal piece of work <laughs> and, and really tickled everybody's bone just about everybody yeah. could quote a line from from his little um, his repertoire. The other thing I just wanted to raise is, and again, in my previous life, this was part of my expertise. I used to travel around the world teaching this to people. This is one of the things that I really encourage people to take on board as a filter when they are consuming either social media or the news. And I think this is increasingly really important. It's easy to convince yourself that the news and your Facebook feed is a representation of real life. It's the news. It's what's going on in the world, right? But in fact, it isn't. By definition, the word new, and this is equally true when somebody's on social media or on Wastebook, as you call it, right? It isn't what is happening in the world. It is not the average. It is not the typical. It is the exceptional. Bombs don't go off in Beirut every day, right? And in fact, in some places they do go off every day and you hardly ever see news about that because it's not exceptional. So by definition, if somebody is lying on a tropical beach in their bikini, right, they're not posting that because they do it every day. They're posting it because it's exceptional. So what you have to teach yourself and train yourself is I'm seeing the top of everybody's iceberg. I'm not seeing the truth. And the sooner you think that that snippet that you're seeing 
is reality, the sooner you will feel that your life is inadequate or that you are not up to standard or that everybody's life is better than yours or that only bad things happen in the world. And it's a really important self-discipline to train yourself Mm. to say, I'm not looking at the typical, I'm looking at the exceptional. The news doesn't come on each night, Stuart, and go, well, in the suburbs of Brisbane today, everything went really well. <laughs> it's not how it goes. Nor, nor, although there is some criticism that people put every meal on Facebook or Instagram, but generally people are putting on highlights of their life. And there's nothing wrong with that. So long as you recognize them as highlights, your phenomenon that you're talking about where people are putting really negative things on, Sometimes I feel like when people get sucked into a dark place, they want to project it elsewhere into the world. And that's a whole other conversation for another day. When you look at people in the health field, like Pat, Dr. Patch Adams, uh, the clown doctors that go in and see the children in the children's hospital and uh, the elder doctors that uh, go into elder care uh, and aged care, cheer everybody up, a good giggle really puts us back on the right foot in in every situation. doesn't matter how dire it is, a good laugh. And one of the best places I know of to go and get a good laugh is down the shed. I hope we get there soon. Yep. To those who are still enjoying it, good for you. Laugh heartily and enjoy it. For those who aren't, hopefully you're at least getting a smile through mechanisms like the shed wireless. But perhaps you have a go-to favourite that you would like to share with us, something that you watch that always gives you a laugh, whether it be something like the dry bar that you Google up a la Stu was talking about or whether it is a go-to favourite movie that you always watch, let us know. The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. I've got one thing I want to share with you with you before I uh, we go, Aaron. Please. I'm going to play a trick on my wife. I've just seen it. It's on on a Twitter feed. And it was a guy who had a staple punched into a piece of wood and he cut one side off and put his finger underneath it. So it looked like he'd stapled his finger and he started yelling and squealing and his wife rushed in and she went, oh my goodness. He said, get the pliers. And she was going to try and pull the staple out of his finger. And he kept moving his hand away from the staple, pointing to the staple and saying, no, grab it there, and then puts his finger back underneath the staple. And she <laughs> she was shaking and going, but it'll hurt, but it'll hurt. And he's going, yep. And he kept moving his hand away from underneath the staple and pointing to where she had to grab with the pliers until he actually withdrew his hand altogether and she was just trying to pull the staple out of nothing. <laughs> I'm going to try it on the wife. Yeah. Next time we talk, I'll tell you how I went. <laughs> Please do, although I feel compelled to add this legal caveat. Practical jokes on your wife, results may vary <laughs> across different <laughs> We might be talking from hospital, yeah, you might, yeah, you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we might be having a fundraiser for your divorce court settlement. <laughs> Jamming. Uh, Always good to talk to you. Lovely to have a laugh, my friend. Look after yourself and we'll talk soon. That is Stuart Torrance, AMSA's Men's Health Project Officer and a man who likes a laugh. Time for our Shed in the Spotlight. First up, show and tell. Let's showcase a project or product from our Shed. (laughs) 
Now, shed in the spotlight for this episode is Debra Menshed from northwest of Brisbane. It is a place for men of all ages to be socially active and form friendships, discover new opportunities and activities. And to tell us about the current passion project, we're joined by Ben Stafford. G'day, Ben. Oh, hi. Welcome to the Shed Wireless. What is the current passion project at Debra? We've been involved in quite a few projects over the years, mostly with local community groups. But the one I was going to talk about is the uh, one that just involved the Shed members and involved uh, milling up a large fallen tree. I've got some friends who lived a few kilometres away. Their house was on a ridge, but the horse paddock was part of the floodplain and and in his paddocks is a uh, large blue gum tree. About three years ago, we had a fortnight of continuous rain and then a big storm. With its roots now sitting in mud, one of the severe gusts uprooted the whole tree. This tree was about 25 metres tall, trunk about 800 millimetres diameter. My friend Mike gave me a call and asked if the men's shed would like the tree. Now, I happened to have a fairly decent-sized chainsaw, a still 88, with a 40-inch blade on it. The tree was too heavy for us to move, so I decided to make up an Alaskan mill. This is basically a metal frame that uh, gets clamped to the chainsaw blade. The distance between the blade and the frame can be adjusted to vary the thickness of the slab. So you start off by laying a flat reference surface on top of the log, an aluminium ladder, for example. The metal frame of the mill slides over the reference surface, guiding the chainsaw blade into a straight cut. Once the first cut has been made, the ladder is no longer needed and the freshly cut surface of the log now becomes the reference for the second cut with the frame sliding along it and so on and so forth. I spent a day making up the Alaskan mill from some steel offcuts and copying the details from examples on the internet. Good slabs at the woodwork shows sell for hundreds of dollars. So when I mentioned the project to the boys at the shed and I included that the helpers could have a slab or two, there was no shortage of takers. The project ended up three days and we had six or seven shedders there each day. Unfortunately, neighbours had come to help my friend Mike before we got there and the trunk had already been cut up into less than ideal pieces. But at least we had one four and a half metre length and a couple at two metres. Could have been better, but the price was right. The trunk was solid right through and many eucalypts are hollow, which uh, means they're not usually worth milling. We had plenty of tape measures and hammers, etc., and so the boys put their initials on all the tools to keep them from getting mixed up. This worked out well, except we had a John Crew, a John Carruthers, and a John Campbell. <laughs> no one had a ladder, a ladder long enough for the main log, so I made up a simple frame out of 25mm square steel tube. We spent an hour or so getting it dead level and fastened to the log, and then away we went. Much to my surprise, it all went just as the book said it would. An Alaskan mill, that size takes two people to handle. With the log lying on the ground, it's fairly awkward as you have to kneel and crawl along while managing the sawmill. The one on the far side is reasonably okay, but the one on the motor end gets all the sawdust poured into his lap. And that's when you find your jeans weren't done up quite as tight as they could have been. Each cut took 15 minutes. Two cuts were quite enough, and then a change to a new operator. Prior to the cutting, we discussed what each person intended to do with their quota of slabs. Tables and bar tops seemed to be the pick. So the end result was that we cut most of the slabs 60 millimetres thick, which even after drying and levelling would give at least 40 millimetres flat board. Plus a couple of slabs from the the shorter trunks were milled at 100 mil to provide legs for any uh, grand dining table productions. A chainsaw wastes nearly one centimetre of wood for every cut. So we've got about 10 slabs from each section of the trunk and blue gum is dense. The long slabs took four persons to carry onto the trailer. 
So an average age of the shedders involved in this project is 70 plus. We got the whole, whole tree milled in two days. And plenty of honourable war wounds in the form of blisters, splinters and sore backs to take home with us. And then we spent another day stacking the fresh cut slabs for drying, for natural air drying as opposed to being in a kiln. The rule of thumb is that you allow one year for every inch of thickness. First we laid some bearers on the ground exactly on the same plane and level so the slabs would dry straight. Undercover is best, but we didn't have the room, so we then covered the stacks with some weighted down old roofing iron to protect the slabs from the sun. And lastly, sealed the ends with a thick coat of old paint. The problem with slabs is that the ends dry faster than the centres, and this often means the slabs crack down the middle. Painting the ends helps reduce the problem. I've also seen gang nails being used to try and stop the splitting. Uh, personally, I don't worry too much and just take what comes, and if I've got a split slab, just continue cutting right through true it up on the planer and then glue it back together. And now, three years down the track, some use is being made of the slabs. A beautiful dining table was made by one of the Johns. He glued two slabs together for a table 1,400 wide by 2,200 long. To level the slabs, he took them to a firm in Brisbane uh, have got a wood whiz. You can also do it yourself by making a couple of tracks and then a cradle on runners to go over the slab. A router with a planing bit is mounted on the cradle and then you just keep on making passes over the slab, moving the router over a bit each time. It's slow, but you get a dead flat surface ready to sand. One of the other Johns is starting on a slightly smaller coffee table project, and another made some picture frames from some of the offcuts with other persons discussing possible plans. We milled what would have been $2,000 worth of slabs. And for whatever project you complete, you also have the pleasure of knowing the tree that the timber came from and that you helped mill it. All very satisfying. So once they're fashioned into the furniture, how much work do they need? A lot. As I said, these slabs take four people to lift them. A little bit lighter now they've dried, but uh, quite a bit of handling and uh, you'll be spending at least a day levelling each slab. So a fair bit of work uh, turning, forming a bit of furniture when, they, when they're ready. And the two tables, the big one and the small one that have been made so far, are they kind of rough surface style or have they been sanded down and polished more smooth? No, they've been finished off beautifully, uh, sanded down and uh, polished, as you suggest. No, they're really, really good looking tables. If you were going to buy them, you'd be up around the seven, $8,000 bracket if you went and bought them from a specialist furniture maker. So... These guys have been making beautiful jobs, beautiful use of these slabs. So I guess my only other question is, given the success of this project, is everybody going around watering the roots of all the trees and praying for a breeze? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think we'll just wait till another wet season and uh, we'll take it from there. But, uh, yeah, we're happy to take on any logs that people offer us and turn them into something useful. Ben, brilliant description of a really interesting project. Thank you very much for show and tell on this episode of The Shed Wireless. Thanks a lot. Catch you later. Shedder in the spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Our shedder in the spotlight from Debra Men's Shed is Michael Owner. Hi, Michael. Hi. What's your story? Uh, my story is that I retired from a large town in southeast New South Wales. It's called Canberra, but you're not allowed to tell anybody you come from Canberra up here, otherwise they hold you personally responsible for everything Canberra's ever done. See, 
I've never really understood that, Michael, because if you really were a Canberran, you'd have stayed there. Surely you've seen the light and headed north and you deserve some credit for that, don't you? Oh, well, we did see the light and we did head, we did head north. Um, we are basically following the warm. As I say, it's better to be poor and warm than poor and cold. <laughs> what did you do in Canberra? I was a psychologist, originally with the government, and then I moved into the private sector. I was in, a pro- the, in Canberra Grammar in the end, looking after their little flock. And how did you come to go from Canberra to Debra? Well, I had a friend here who was a, used to be a cartoonist uh, on various Queensland papers, and uh, he was the only person I knew in Debra, but we decided we needed to find somewhere to live, so Debra was it. We turned up here in 2004, bought a house and started to do it up. How's that coming along? Oh, well, it's well and truly finished. I've moved from the ripe old age of 60 to now 76, and uh, we've moved out of that house and we're now living in a retirement village. Now, I realise that you've probably worked with the toughest materials of all in your time, the, the human brain and the human psyche, but those skills don't always obviously transfer to the shed. How did you make the transition from the sort of profession that you had to the sort of work that happens in Debra Shed? The one thing that did transfer was, you know, a commitment to all comers um, and which is what I think characterises this shed. We take all comers and we look after our flock uh, extremely well. Um, you know, they, we, we're probably an older group of men. Maybe our average age is up around 70, early, early 70s, yeah. And with all the afflictions that go with that, uh, that age, you know, we've got, we've got pe- people who are, who are struggling with various forms of illness and mental illness, and we, we we accommodate them all. Give me an expert opinion. As a former psychologist, what do you think Debra Menshed does for the mental health and well-being of its attendees? I think it's just simply outstanding. It provides a focus. We've got a whole lot of different activities, um, not necessarily you've heard from Ben, um, which is a highly technical aspect of it. There are a bunch of guys here who basically play golf. Um, there are other men who just turn up for a chat. There are some guys who periodically, this is me, uh, have a project and we work on that. When I first moved here in 2004, I really believed that I was the only old fart in the village. Um, I couldn't find, as far as I knew, there was nobody of my age. They all seemed to be young blokes in utes. It was when uh, John Shubman, who you'll hear from shortly, um, started to pull together this, this idea of a men's shed that I suddenly found that I wasn't the only person in the village of, of, a, of the senior age. One of the great advantages to this place is that old blokes, older blokes, don't uh, interact as well as perhaps they did when they were younger. And as soon as this shed started to come together, they came out of the woodwork. Uh, we have, we've got a really firm base of committed members. That's a very interesting observation. In all the hours that I've talked on the Shed Wireless about how men interact with each other and, you know, the opportunities and the threats in that regard. 
That's the first time I've heard someone say that men might behave differently as they get older to the bloke that they were when they were younger. Do you actually think that it is harder to form that community the older you get if you don't have a mechanism like the shed? Yeah, I do. I, I think that um, we're, we're used to, men in particular, but probably women as well, we're used to a more structured sort of social environment, like going to work every day and, uh, and, and having our work colleagues and, and all the structure that goes with that. Uh, and then when you retire, as I did, into the great unknown, um, uh, you, you suddenly find that you're, you don't have any social contacts. The only social contacts you have is when you hit your thumb with a hammer and you go and see the doctor. Um, so, yeah, for, for me it was just it was the opening up of, a, of the whole town from my point of view. But, the, but more, as importantly, the, um, the, the various wives of, of members have also got together, not to form a woman's shed, but they've just got together and formed other uh, activities as well, which has been going on for well over 10 years. You know, they, they play Mahjong every week. They've got a book club that they go to once a month. They're, they're into and they all hang about together and do things. So it's been an enormous benefit to them as well. Really what you're describing there is sewing the fabric of an entire community if you start doing that. Look, I just think that this, this shed and probably this shed, I've seen another shed go up in uh, just recently, our shed, I think, is rather unique in that we we had nothing. Um, we 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 had no resources. Um, ben gave us his shed to operate in when he was still working, um, and and we had a great deal of difficulty getting anybody to give us anything. We would bemoan our fate, but that has been the the making of this shed. The fact that we had to really graft for every dollar and cent and stick of wood that we got, um, this shed's come together and we made it. We, we weren't given it. The government didn't give us anything. We made it and we made it, you know, panel by panel and and we had to work hard to raise the money. To, and we, we, we certainly got some grants, but we had to work hard on getting grants. Whereas another shed I'm aware of um, was given an enormous shed, probably, you know, twice or three times the size of ours, size of ours, donated the land, and I drive past this shed fairly frequently and I rarely see anybody there. Out of the, ad well, I suppose it was adversity, but difficulty um, has come a very strong body of men. That's one of the parables of life or the blueprints for success that you've talked about there, that if you have to work for something, you tend to treasure it a little bit more. As a white-collar bloke, you said you've taken on a couple of projects. What did you turn your hand to? Yeah, I came here with sort of handyman-type skills, um, not particularly developed and not, not a wide range of um, uh, not a wide range of knowledge about uh, how things work, but the blokes here step aside and, and, and work with you and introduce you to various tools and then get you in, interested in doing something that you might be wanting to do, and uh, they'll, 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 they'll walk alongside you until you've obviously got a handle on it, and then they'll, they'll go off and do something else. It's, it's a very, as I said before, it's a very, very cooperative and uh, helpful bunch of people. So what are you proudest of that you've worked on? Oh, what I'm proudest of is the shed itself. 
But yeah, no, I have, I've, I've made a you know the, the, a few things along the way. I made a when I moved up here, the, the property I bought um, had been here for a hundred and ten or fifteen years, and uh, there was some old timber lying around which I which I uh, shaped up and turned into some a, a bit a few bits of uh, household um, uh, a few bits of household uh, gear, basically a big tray. Um, but other things as well. So, and uh, but but recently I've run out. Of, I because I live a bit further out of town now. Um, I haven't got the same, and I'm living in a you know retirement community. Um, I I haven't got the same need to build things, but I'd like to get back into it. Well, I play golf. You see, how's the handicap? Oh, it's stationary. <laughs> it's, it's, it hasn't moved in ten years. Everybody who joins the sheds asked if they want to play golf. Um, and uh, and we take again all comers, people who have never played golf before, will turn up and uh, you know, hack around, and and we've got a range of people. It's a it's a it's an analogy for the shed. We've just got a range of men, a uh, range of skills, and we enjoy the walk in the early morning. You've made it sound like paradise and probably done no good for net Canberra migration over the next few years. <laughs> but I'm really glad that you found your bit of paradise in the sun up north. Thanks for being a shedder in the spotlight, Michael. Okay, thank you very much. Michael Owner. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. Time to find out the yesterday and the tomorrow of the Debra Men's Shed with founder John Schumann. Hi, John. Hello, how are you? And hello, everybody in Shed World. <laughs> Lovely to have you in the Shed Wireless and on the Shed Wireless. Tell us the history of the Debra Shed. I was a member of Apex for many, many moons. And I was coming to the end of my apex life at the age of 45, 46, and I was looking for something else to do. And um, I'm a builder by trade, and when I drove around Dover and the districts, I found that a lot of the older fellas didn't have much to do. So I heard on the radio many times about the men's shed, and I thought I'd start it up and have a bit of a go. And here we are. Can't be any more prouder of it. How would you go about getting that off the ground? I went to the Pine Rivers Men's Shed because they started up before us and I went to a few of their meetings and then I got the handbook from the Australian Men's Shed Association, you know, the big folder, the other Bible. I've still got it. It's fantastic. And then I started to organise a, a public meeting and at the public meeting we got around 34 men plus all their wives and, so, and we went from there and organised the steering committee. That was in 2011. Ben and Michael have both given us some small sense of the shed, but how would you characterise your shed? What's its individual qualities? I think it's just that the, the gathering of men who get together and have a great time and, and be able to talk and have a bit of banter without any other influences from the outside. And they can have a bit of fun and, and say what they want to say. And people who want to listen, they listen. If they don't, they just walk away and shake their head. 
But uh, life goes on. What's the demographics of Dabra more broadly? Because it's an interesting location, not far from a big city, but w- where are you drawing your men from and what sort of backgrounds do they have? The Dabra was originally a, a dairy farming area and a fruit growing where they grow pineapples and all that. But uh, since they've sort of closed that area down a bit and opened it up to development, we've got a lot more... Um, uh, people coming in from the city looking for a country life, so they're doing a bit of a tree change. So most of the men that are in the shed at the moment are tree changers and not actually the local fellas, but uh, the local boys, the original local fellas from, from 100-odd years ago, they will eventually start coming in with the families. But most of them are all just uh, sort of tree changers who've come in for a rural lifestyle. The Shed Wireless is heard all over Australia and all over the world, and as you know... If you're running a shed, you're always looking to pick up a tip as to what works well and I guess to know where a few of the potholes are as well so you can avoid them. What advice and recommendations would you give to other sheds about how to create a positive culture in a successful shed? Well, I think the leadership has to be a positive and then the committee's got to be positive and listen to everybody and so everybody can voice their opinions and you take them on board. Uh, whether the, the opinions uh, carry through or not, but at least they're heard, and that's what, what what men want to be done. They want to be heard. So you've got to listen to them and hear them and then go from there. What's left to do for Debra Shed? I'm hoping that they'll keep it going for when I retire because I'm only 46 when I started the shed up. I'm 57 now, and hopefully in another 10 years, the time when I retire, that uh, I can just wander down here and have it all done for me and then start to enjoy enjoy life, working in the shed with all the other men. I got visions of them having built a golden lounge for you and some of that local fruit being popped in your mouth like you're the emperor coming home, yeah? Yeah, well, I hope so, but I know that's not going to be true because I do uh, I do upset a few around the place, but uh, yeah, we get over that and we'll move on. I sense that there's a lot of pride both personally and as a shed in what you've been able to achieve there. Yes, there is a lot of pride and uh, every time I drive past it on a Monday and a Tuesday and I see all the boys down here working away, I reckon it's fantastic. I reckon it's really good. It makes me makes my little heart glow when I drive past and see everybody in it. And then when we do the meetings down at the cafe and have a chat to everybody, when there's 30 blokes down there all gibbering away, I reckon it's fantastic. What would your numbers be these days? Numbers? Uh, I'm not too sure. I'll just like, get on the mark. What's 45, the numbers? 45. They got 40, we've got 45 members, yeah. From a population of what? Um, oh, no, I reckon there's probably only at the amount of households in the area, probably looking at about five or 600 households, maybe 700 households. The David Township Three or four thousand people, but the David District that holds uh, Lacey's Creek, Rush Creek, Mount Pleasant, Cobble Creek, Armstrong Creek has probably got about ten thousand people in the area. That's a remarkable effort, and it sounds like with uh, the migration north that you should have a steady supply of blokes retiring, including your good self in the years ahead. Thank you so much for welcoming us inside your shed today and telling us about the fascinating projects, some of your really interesting participants and of course the shed itself thanks very much john thank you very much for that and talk to you soon bye john sherman founder of the debra men's shed telling us his shed story on the shed wireless would you like to put your shed in the spotlight just contact us via email 
the shed wireless at mensched.net and we'll take care of the rest. Cricketer Dennis Lilly held the world record for test wickets once upon a time, was consistently the most feared, most hostile and most unrelentingly competitive fast bowler of his generation, was a handy bat on occasions, even if it was sometimes aluminium, and could certainly generate a headline including the infamous Sunday Telegraph's legendary line, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, if Thompson don't get you, Lily must. And the fact that phrases like that and court marsh bowl lily have entered the Australian vernacular even many years on, still recognisable. Lily's menace, his mo, his flowing hair, the gold chain on the chest, the steely determination and the swagger, he still occupies a really special place in Australian culture and in many ways was the image of the Australian male of the 1970s and beyond. But the world has changed a bit since then, and so has the legendary DK Lilly. Like just about everyone in Australia, he has a connection to a men's shed. And like all of us, he is facing the greatest opponent of all, Father Time. And as I understand it, he's as likely to be wielding a pair of tongs or maybe a corkscrew as he is a piece of willow these days. I am truly delighted to welcome to the Shed Wireless, Dennis Lilly. Hello, DK. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks so much for your generosity with your time. When was the last time you sent down a cherry? <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call it a, a cherry. Um, it was probably a tennis ball in the in the backyard with the, the grandies. And let me tell you, it, um, it came out like a blamond bullet, and I thought, <laughs> and it hurt. <laughs> so that was the end of that. That was probably about oh five years ago. Oh, that long, really? And how old are your grandkids now? One's 16, one's uh, 14, and the other one's nearly eight. Are they cricketers? Uh, no, no, but they didn't mind having holding a bat and bowling a ball down. Just I guess everyone, sort of just Christmas time, that, that sort of situation would happen uh, to run off a bit of the, the Christmas pudding, but no, none of them actually played. They played different sports and very good academically, so they're into it. And you see a bit of them, do you? Yeah, it's um, as much as we can, obviously. Um, so it's a great part of life when it gets to grandchildren. Um, you know, we'd be able to sort of spoil them and then hand them back. I think the parents have to sort out the problem. So. <laughs> do they have any sense of who you were? Oh, I, I, yeah, I think they do. I don't know about the youngest one. We, you know, it's never brought up. I never bought anything to do with cricket home, <clears throat> even to, you know, our kids. Cricket was a separate part, really, although I'm sure they, you know, I know they knew, but I never talked about it, never, never discussed a game or anything to do with it, really, at home. But beyond the cricket aspect of it, the celebrity aspect of it, it must have been something of a challenge for your boys to have grown up being your son, not necessarily for anything that happened at home, but for the way they were perceived from the outside. Did you and your wife have to address that? Yeah, we were very aware of it from uh, from really young age. Uh, when they could understand things, we, we pointed out that, you know, they may be uh, given special attention. They may, you know, have... have uh, People want to get close to them. They may even have people that don't like me and therefore take it out on them. Fortunately, that didn't happen. And they were they went in full arms. So they, they've handled it very, very well and were prepared, I guess, for 
whatever may happen. Um, but it, it, it was like, I'm sure it was 95% positive. And what about them and sport? Back in 99, quite famously, you and Adam got to share a pitch when you both played. It was against the Pakistanis, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, a, a called a first-class game. It was a pipe opener to the tour, and, and Lilac Hill in Perth uh, used to have a pipe opener game um, against the touring side. And I, to try and get some publicity for it, and I, I suppose help get a crowd there, um, I was basically the sort of <clears throat> patron who played in all of those games right from the start. And at 50... <laughs> I said to, to Adam, who'd just been playing some third and fourth grade cricket, I don't know how old he was, I think he was about 20, maybe 22, 21, I don't know, he'd been playing um, some, some cricket. I said to him, look, you know, I'd love to play a game of cricket with you, a good game of cricket with you. I said, this is going to be my last game. Um, you know, <clears throat> I just wanted to, you know, see if you'd, you'd like, you like, I'd love to do that. I said, look, I've got to warn you, there's, um, these guys are test players, you know, like, <laughs> You're playing third and fourth grade. It could be a bit daunting. He said, no, I can only do my best. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in. So he was wrapped. And he took a screamer off you and got a couple of wickets himself, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he bowled very well. I think he got two or three wickets. Um, I think we had Pakistan five for 25 at one stage when they uh, said, <laughs> call, they went to our captain and said, call off the dogs. I guess we were the dogs. But uh, So they, they put on some part-timers and, um, you know, otherwise... Might not have been too good of a game, and Adam was fielding its fine leg. And I, early on, I bowled a bouncer to the opener, and uh, the guy it was quite close to his shoulder and head, and so he sort of got a bit of shoulder of the bat on it, and it went flying down to fine leg. And it's a smallish ground at Lilac, and Adam ran in full of endeavour, um, and only to have to go back a couple of paces and throw himself madly right, and this catch uh, stuck. I just said to him, mate, you should have just, Dad was going to look after you, stay where you, you should have stayed where you were, would have put it straight down your throat, you know, going to put it straight down your throat. He said, Dad, in third and fourth grade cricket, he said, they don't hit them that well. He said, uh, or don't, you know, they don't carry that far. He said, I just thought I had to run like mad to get to it. Uh, so, um, anyway, it, it ended up well. I have seen the footage and he looks down at his hand and sees the ball in it and he couldn't have been happier if it was a gold bar. <laughs> He's pretty pleased that it stuck. I yeah, know, it was an exciting moment. Please tell me that if you came on and bowled at the start of the season at the age 50, the rib cage must have been sore the next day, mustn't it? No, I wasn't bad because, see, I, funnily enough, I'm a bit, a bit fanatical like that. I don't want to embarrass myself. So I train, I always train before those, those games for two months. I mean, really trained and uh, bowled a lot in the nets and, and did lots of, um, well, I, I ran anyway, did lots of running and lots of uh, Pilates and stuff like that. So to get my body in reasonable shape because, it, you know, obviously at that age, you're not going to be like you were at 25. No. And fast bowling is one of those things that no matter whether you're in great nick or terrible nick, you have to do it to do it, don't you? It tests muscles and joints that nothing else quite does. It engages all of your body. So, you know, right from your, your toes, right up to your head. So, yeah, I mean, you just have to, you have to actually do the action regularly to get into the sort of shape that it should be to bowl, you know, for 20-odd overs or 25 overs in a, in a game. I hope you don't mind me mentioning that you recently had your 71st birthday. And like all of us, you are in that battle with Father Time. 
how do you approach your health and fitness being quite a pioneer in your day? How do you approach that these days? Well, I probably never stopped. I never stopped doing something. And I, I always thought that, you know, you've got to keep the machine running, keep the motor running. I've always thought that. I, you know, there's a little thing. I mean, you know, we clean our teeth every day for the health of our teeth. Why don't we do something towards our body every day to, to sort of keep them in as good a shape as our teeth, yeah. if you know what I mean? Yeah. So what does that look like in 2020 for you? You know, it's not bragging, but I'd say I'm as fit as most 71-year-olds even around the world because I do something towards it all the time. I also let it go from time to time. I mean, I, you know, if I want to have a big night um, on red wine or, um, you know, eat crap food or whatever every now and again, I do it. But in between times, we really, you know, try to sort of eat healthily. We have a, a, a day a week, most weeks, where we, we go to a 600-calorie day and, you know, it's, it's, it's used to be hard, but it's not too bad now. And that, it's almost like cleansing as well. It's, it's not fanatical, but it's just keeping the motor running. You know, even something small, a walk, just to keep the motor going. Because it's not like, as you said, you live any life of austerity because in particular you enjoy a good Australian wine and, and enjoy a bit of cooking as well as eating. Let's talk wines first of all. How did wines come into your life? Because you weren't always a drinker, were you? No, actually I was sort of considered a bit strange in the team because there was a beer culture. There's no doubt about that. Not just Australian teams, it was all teams. And a lot of it was just that comradeship and that, you know, going to the dressing room with the opposition and having a chat and, uh, you know, it was sort of an accepted thing for years. I didn't didn't drink. I didn't like the taste of beer. Um, and, you know, that's what what the guys drank. So, yeah, so I didn't drink much. And um, then we, Helen and I went, we were asked to go and open a bushing festival. I think it was in the Clare Valley years ago, 73 or 74 or something, maybe even earlier. And so we went there and you just do it if you want to. It's a nice trip for Helen and I. Um, it must be around 72. And uh, anyway, we, we went to this festival, opened the festival, didn't have a drink, or we didn't drink, um, full-strength Coca-Cola. And um, we got uh, got a lift to the plane, got in the plane, got home, and the, the baggage handler said, oh, you've got some excess luggage. And I said, no, we haven't. You know, we've, we've got it with us. And he said, no, 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 you've got a lot of excess luggage. There was 12 dozen bottles of the finest reds and whites from the Clare Valley, uh, which, what are we going to do with this? So we lived in a weatherboard and asbestos house, no cellar. Obviously, it heated up dramatically during the summer and, and got cold as hell during the winter. We stuffed them all under beds and in cupboards and um, didn't touch them for years. And then when we finally sort of started to have a few um, wines or friends came over and we opened a few, a lot were gone, obviously, but there were some lovely surprise packets there. So that was the start of it. And from that moment on, your appreciation has grown? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it was just in those days, you know, you just had it socially, a, you know, a glass or two. You know, I think even Leap from Mulch or something like that was a black tower <laughs> Blue Nun, maybe, was it? Benin. Matus Rosé. You know? <laughs> Not so much a good year as a good month. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, we didn't really get into it much until much later when I came across um, a, a guy uh, called Basil Sellers. And, and we also went to Yalumba in the rest days of, the, of 
of cricket matches in Adelaide, and you sort of got a little bit of a taste for it there. Basil introduced me to really good wines and how to appreciate them and how to how to uh, rate them and and uh, store them and get a cellar and you know all that sort of stuff. So it, it, it just gradually, and then we went and did a wine appreciation course and, uh, later on. That was sort of you know probably in our forties, fifties. So yeah, it just grew slowly, and now I've got to, uh, it's my it's my hobby is um, is uh, wine, you know, and cellaring. That's something you share with Helen, is it? Because I'm interested. You you guys have been together a long time and you've been, dare I say it, quite a few different people over the course of that life. She's been a mum and then a professional. You were a professional cricketer and then a retired cricketer and had various other jobs as well. So how important is stuff like that for having a common interest? Well, Helen didn't really drink much at all, but she went along to the wine appreciation course and enjoyed that and gradually started to have a bit of a sip of mine and then, you know, she, she, we now probably have, we share a, a bottle over two days, so we have half a bottle between us one day and half a bottle between us the next day and then if we go out, we might have a little bit more and I might have a lot more, you know, so um, it just depends on the occasion. Perhaps a lot of people mightn't appreciate this, and given that many of the men listening to this interview may be transitioning out of a long career in a certain area and then having to reinvent themselves somewhat, you had to do that in a fashion much earlier in life. You were Dennis Lilly, the international cricketer, and then all of a sudden you were Dennis Lilly at home while your wife went back and studied. Yeah, it was quite a shock, really, to the system. Helen's decided to go back to uni and get a degree. And the kids were, well, I don't know, they were probably 14 and 12, I'm not sure. But it was, you know, they're going to high, I think just going to high school, about, about to go to high school. And um, we agreed that I would do that for a couple of years, so three years until she got a degree or at least broke the back of it before doing it part-time. I can always remember I'd been to England for some work and uh, I, I sort of arrived back, you know, as you do, two or three in the morning in Perth. Helen picked me up and got home, got about, you know, I was in a deep sleep and I got this sort of, well, well, it's seven o'clock. Today happens to be a washing day, so we've got to do all the washing sheets and the towels and whatever. And um, I'm off to uni. I've got to have a quick breakfast and I'm off to uni. And I said, but, 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 but I don't even know... I, I, I couldn't turn a washing machine on. I don't know how to turn it on, which was not quite right. But I said, she said the instructions are down there. I'll see you at five. <laughs> that was it. That's a pretty grounding process. How did you cope with all of that? I tell you what. Well, it was it was difficult. Um, you know, I, I was the one that had a headache at night. You know, so um, <laughs> <laughs> it was quite an experience. Uh, and I looked. I really enjoyed it, and I said to um, look, you know, well, now that you know, I'm doing this, and I, I still had my work to do, which because we had an office at home, and still very busy with that. And uh, I said, oh no, but during the day, I said, you know, while well, I'm waiting for you, doing bits and washing and cleaning and all that sort of stuff, I'll, I'll you know, I'll have someone from the street down for afternoon tea or morning tea, you know, every couple of days. Well, let me tell you, in two three years, it never happened once. Didn't have time. Full appreciation for home duties, I can tell you. In hindsight, though, that would have been valuable time with your boys that a lot of professional, I use the term advisedly because you weren't necessarily making a lot of coin out of it, but it's something that's denied to a lot of professional athletes. 
Yeah, it is. But remember, I wasn't professional. Um, and the other thing was that when I was home and decided to actually, well, with World Series cricket, we did uh, cricket full time. You know, I was there in the mornings and sort them off to, you know, school, breakfast off to school. And, then, and at the end of the day, I was there as well. So I spent a lot of good quality time with them in a certain period of time. They're probably from World Series cricket onwards. But early on, you miss a lot of it. And I worked, you know, we, you know, we had jobs. We, we worked nine to five, basically. I worked in the bank for eight. Yeah, it was probably like most other, other um, fathers, really, except later on, I got to spend a lot more time with them. Do you have much to do with cricket these days? I know you were with the Wacker for a while and quite famously supporting, mentoring some of our emerging fast bowlers. What's cricket to you in 2020? Yeah, it was certainly not the Wacker. Um, I... Uh, I've moved on from there, um, disappointingly, I'd say. Mm. Not that I'm not there anymore, but just in uh, what what happened. It ended suddenly, didn't it? Yeah, I walked out, basically. We'll leave it at that. Mm. Anyway, the I still keep, if there's young lads that have show promise, uh, I'm, I'm happy to sort of show them or work with them with their, their techniques, their actions to get them right for going forward. And I also have helped over the years the, the likes of Mitchell Johnson, Cummings, and start, start, you know, a few of those other guys if they've had problems. And usually I get them when they're on, not on the scrap heap, but when they're, they're sort of badly injured or whatever and they need to sort of address technical issues in their, in their bowling action. So I, st- I still do a bit of that, but it's not a paid uh, job. I just do it if I want to and, uh, and I love what I do. So that's my involvement nowadays. You know, guys like Brett Lee and all those guys had a, a lovely uh, Watson, lovely sort of relationship with them as far as uh, they could ring any time and send videos over any time and come and visit any time. And, you know, it, it was yeah, it was a lovely involvement. I still do a bit of it, but uh, I don't seem to get the younger ones now if they've got problems in the team, you know, like the Australian or, or Shield guys. It's more the up-and-coming guys sort of coming through the ranks. You say that you handpick them and that their attitude is a factor in whether or not you take them on. How much is a cricketer born and how much is a cricketer made? How much happens in the body and how much happens between the ears? I'm sure you're born to, to bowl fast. I don't think you can ma- manufacture that. I think people have tried over the years, but it's it's never worked. It, there's never been any results. You have to have a... Some sort of well, yeah, first you have to have fast twitch muscles. You have to have a bit of endurance, you know, obviously because it's um, it's quite a, and then you have to have a, a a good good strong action. So you can't just grab a bloke in the street as a big bloke and say, you know, you'll bowl fast, son. I'll teach you. That's impossible. No, but also you're not a big bloke. You're not quite six foot, are you? I'm, I'm well. I'm quarter Collingwood six footer, so that's probably about five eleven and three quarters. <laughs> With your heels on. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't wear them. <laughs> uh, and I mean, Brett Lee's not a big bloke either. Oh, he's maybe six one, six one. Oh, is he? Yeah. Yeah. Tomo was six one. Um, uh, you know, Lenny Pascoe probably six foot. Um, in those days, a lot were around the six foot mark. Six one, six one and a half was quite, you know, considered quite big. And then they got bigger. Very much so, particularly the West Indians. West Indies, gee, you know, they're six foot eight, six nine, six ten. But that's not enough, is it? When you're reminiscing here with me, you're not talking about oh how. 
you felt this happen or that happen in your body. It's all about what happened in your head and your self-talk and your attitude. And I mean, in many ways, you're as famous for that as anything else. Yeah, but you can't have that. Well, you can't you can't impose that if you haven't got sort of a, a good physical, you know, that you're physically fit and strong uh, and, and you haven't got a good technique. I mean, you can do it, but you won't do it for long. But then the mind, then the strength, strength of mind, the mental toughness. And, and there's two parts to the mental, mental toughness. And then there's that other side of the mental where you have to be able to work out a batsman. Um, you know, you've got to be able to sort of um, work out how to get him out. You've got to work out a secondary plan. You've got to work out if all that else fails, you starve them out in the field by setting good fields and things like that to frustrate them out if there's nothing in the wicket. Uh, or the ball's not doing anything. So the mindset is, is very well, super important, but you can't do that if you haven't got a technique that allows you to put the ball where you want to. Did you ever get down? As I say, the mythology around you is that you were steely determined and fearsome competitor and all of that sort of thing, but did you ever battle the demons? Yeah, look, I, it's only, only funny you should say this just the other day that John Inverdi, who was my captain and we toured England in 72, when I had the, you know, the start of the back problems, that he, he said, he said, I just remember one day walk, at Old Trafford walking into the dressing room during a minor game or, you know, a lead-up game, county game, and you were crying your heart out from pain in your back. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I felt it like anyone. I had steely resolve in that I... I believe, whether foolishly or rightly, that you can overcome most things if you work hard enough at it uh, and given a bit of luck. And so I didn't stay down for long. When you cast your mind back to your test debut, 1970-71, 5 for 84 from 28.3, eight ball overs, does that seem like two weeks ago or a thousand years ago? Um, it, it's funny... I haven't thought much about it, but but I, I I suppose it doesn't seem that long ago. But then it seems like an eternity, you know. <laughs> it, it's it's clear in my mind that game. Not many other games are, but it's very clear in my mind that one. I know it was a long time ago, so yeah, it, it's 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 still there and still very clear. But you know, I don't I don't hang on it. I like to ask this of lots of our guests. Interpret it how you wish. If you could change any one thing, what would it be? I love the fact we played basically in an amateur era because it was a, a terrific lot of comedy, camaraderie and all that sort of stuff. Um, a lot of fun. So that side of it uh, was good. No, you know, not, There's pressure, but not, not the pressure they probably get today because it's their job and they've got to hold their job down. I think, though, from the point of view of perfecting your art and being better, um, and we should all try and be better at whatever we we do. I think that from that point of view, to having to have it be able to do it full time like they do today, I just would have loved to have been a full time professional because I think that would have suited my game. You just to have the time to do not have to cram it between working and jobs and uh, you know doing promotions and you know all those sorts of things would have been. Would it just suited me as a person? Coming back to the men's shed movement, I said you have a shed connection. Is it a brother-in-law who you know who's a shedder? 
Yeah, Jim Maslin, my brother-in-law, he's he's a shedder, dedicated shedder, and uh, he uh, he loves it, and he's very, very handy. He, he can do anything. He can turn his hand to anything. And so someone like that's very welcome at, at a men's shed, uh, but it also is good for him too. He, he loves the involvement. You know, he also loves a bit of mentoring, and, and I, it gets him out of the home, out of the house, and I think everyone... As they get a bit older, I think they've got to have a bit of their own space as well, um, even when you're younger. But certainly as you get older, you don't want to be just 70 odd years of age crawling around the house, you know, looking for things to do. So, yeah, he's very involved there uh, and loves what he does. Given that you were concentrating on batting and bowling and fitness and then into a business career, I don't imagine you ever did an apprenticeship or spent that much time on the tools, how would you go if you wandered into a shed, do you think? Well, actually, I'd look forward to it. I, I did metalwork and woodwork at school and enjoyed it very much, really loved it. I can do a lot of the menial stuff, but I, I'm not technically, ironically, I'm technically very good with fast, fast bowling, but I'm not technically very good with motors and, you know, all that all those sort of uh, intricate things. But, you know, I can I can do things like mend things and all the menial stuff. Um, I'm really a frustrated handyman, and my my uh, nieces say that I could fix anything given some poly pipe and duct tape. So I've got a, I've got a bit of a name out there. Believe me, there's a place in a shed for you with those skills. Any shed will have you if you can do this. If you can hold it together with sticky tape and barbed wire, you've got a gig. Something that I, you know, I, I could look at maybe. But I, I, I do a lot around the house, and we've got a hobby farm sort of thing, beach house hobby farm, and uh, there's always things, fences and bobcats and you know tires to be fixed, and your, your ball breaks down and your pipes burst somewhere, and you know, so there's all those sorts of things. As I said, menial, but, but I enjoy the fact that I can have a go and most times go close to fixing them without having to, you know, get a mate to sort of come and give me some advice. You sound like you're still steaming into life, DK. Yeah, I mean, I'm, look, as uh, when people say, how old are you? I say, I'm only 71. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, people say, oh, I'm 71. I say, I'm only 71. Well, I think I'm going well for 71 and I, I hopefully touch wood and, you know, no severe illnesses and keep fit, you, you can go for a while. I've got plenty of red wine to get through myself. There's, there's stuff they made 40 and 50 years ago that's just about ready to drink now. DK, uh, as you know, I reckon between the ages of maybe 6 and 15, I read every word that was ever written about you and watched every ball that you ever bowled. So to have the opportunity to reflect on a life, albeit one with plenty of runs still left in it, it's been a true honour to spend some time with you and to learn a little bit about what life looks like for you in this day and age. And on behalf of Shedders across Australia, we're deeply appreciative of your time here on the Shed Wireless. No, very good. It was great to uh, to do the interview with you. It was um, it was in, indeed a, a pleasure, and uh, I also sort of feel uh, that the Shedders do such a great job that I, I was I was glad to be involved. The legendary Dennis DK Lilly. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it with Rick Woodchip. G'day, Shadows, Rick Woodchip here. 
how you're going today? I've just come back from down the shed. <laughs> Bloody funny day today. We're having this barbecue, right? To celebrate all getting back to the shed and stuff. And Big Kev, the impatient bastard, grabbed one of the snags straight off the plate and it was burning his fingers. So what did he do? He stuck it in his gob, the idiot. Next thing you know, he's burned his tongue and spat the sausage, top teeth and all. <laughs> Bloody hell, I laughed so much I nearly blew my own teeth across the floor. And mine are still firmly attached to me gums. <laughs> Jeez, we have a laugh, we do. Mostly at each other's expense. You know those times where you just get into those fits of laughter, you can hardly bloody breathe, you cough, you choke, you get cramps in your belly, tears running down your face, you feel like you're going to die. But it's the best thing for you, they reckon. A laugh a day keeps the doctor away. Bugger the apple. And if you can't find something to laugh about on a daily basis, well, you need to look at changing things up a little, I reckon. They reckon the average infant laughs about 150 times a day. Compared to us adults, only five times a day. Now where did that all go pear-shaped? Maybe we all just take life a little too seriously, eh? No, we definitely do. No matter what, I've always tried to maintain a sense of humour, even at the worst of times, and now and again at very inappropriate times. But I make a point of trying to turn a frown upside down any time I see one, especially if it's staring me in the mirror. You know, I reckon if I hadn't been an A-grade farmer, entrepreneur, inventor, three-hat chef, tech guru, male model, crooner, and part-time gigolo, I would have made a bloody good stand-up comedian. I reckon I'm about the funniest bloke I know. Yep, sometimes I'm the only one that gets half me jokes, but as long as I make someone laugh, I'm happy. But there ain't nothing better than a good belly laugh, and there ain't nothing a good belly laugh can't fix either. It's scientifically proven too. Google it. Makes you smarter relieves pain, burns calories, counteracts depression, builds your immune system, even cures boredness. Nah, <laughs> I just threw that one in there, but it wouldn't surprise me. They reckon the secret to living well and longer is eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and you'll live to your 100. It's bloody infectious too. I reckon when you laugh, you give out some kind of gas that makes everyone else laugh too. Like when you yawn, you know? Mind you, the missus was laughing so hard watching TV the other night that she released some other kind of gas that cleared the room. That must be where they got the term happy gas. Bless a little cotton socks. Don't get me wrong, a good cry every now and again won't kill you. But I'd rather be munching down a box of popcorn watching Blazing Saddles than crying in a bucket of ice cream watching The Notebook. You know what I mean? You don't need to look too far to find something to laugh at either. Whether it's a favourite book, a movie, or those stupid bloody cat videos on YouTube. And it's always good to have someone to laugh with too. So if you've got one or a couple, like me mates down the shed, don't take it for granted. Anyway, Shedders, speaking of laughter, I've got a funny feeling if I don't wash up for dinner, it'll be hot tongue and cold bum for old Uncle Rip. Okay, fellas, gotta go. I'll talk to you next week. See you, fellas. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. In our last episode, we asked our shed doctor, Professor Rob McLaughlin, for an introductory tour of the prostate gland. And what a magical mystery tour it was, full of quirks and cringes and misconceptions and mythology. And we learned that this lump in our nether regions occupies a lot of our time and our brain space, but we lack quality information about it. 
And when our conversation turned to talking about what happens when the prostate actually turns cancerous, that's when Rob said he wanted some backup. He said this area was so specialised and there was so much misinformation circulating that he wanted to get you the best expertise Australia has to offer. Well, that expertise has come in the form of Associate Professor Jeremy Grummet. And he may be the only man in Australia with a business card to match Rob's. Urological Surgeon and Director of Clinical Research in Urology at Alfred Health, a Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Surgery at Monash University, a PhD and Master of Surgery Research Supervisor, co-founder of MRI Pro and a member of the Australian Urology Associates Private Practice Group. Welcome to The Shed Wireless, Jeremy. Thanks very much, Aaron. Great to be here. We're joined, as always, by Professor Rob McLaughlin, AM, a Director at Healthy Male, formerly Andrology Australia, valued partners of the Australian Men's Shed Association, and our Shed Wireless doctor in the house. Hello, Rob. G'day, Aaron. Good to see you. And you, have I paraphrased you accurately that once we started going down that wormhole that took in cancer, and I use the term wormhole advisedly, you said, really, this is a specialised area, hence Jeremy. Yes, well, this is such an important area uh, for men to consider. And, uh, you know, we know it's uh, one of the most common cancers in men. It's, we know it increases uh, in prevalence as you get older, certainly after the age of 50. And in fact, uh, most men, if they get to the age of 80 or 90, will have some sort of prostate cancer, but that uh, often doesn't cause them any, any harm. Uh, what's most perplexing about this condition is that there are these sort of slowly growing ones that are never going to do you any harm, but there are others which are aggressive at a young age and can uh, obviously cause uh, mortality and, and great uh, suffering. So uh, it's something that men worry about. We know that from our, our surveys. They're always asking us about it. And so I guess the, the issue is that for most men, there are no symptoms uh, of this condition. They just have a concern. So how do you match something that you're worried about with something you don't know that it could be happening? And that's where we come into the area for what do you do first? Do you know about blood tests and gloves and all that kind of thing? And I thought it would be great for Jeremy to give us an introduction as to what you might do if you are concerned about this in your life, perhaps you had a family history of it or whatever, what do you do first? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you, you've sort of introduced the whole scene beautifully there, Rob. Thank you for that. What I'd like to really touch on here is this whole concept of early detection. So cancer of the prostate, uh, as Rob has mentioned, is, is extremely common. Um, but it is complicated by the fact that there are very aggressive prostate cancers which can be lethal. Um, and there are very indolent or harmless prostate cancers which sit there and do nothing. And our job uh, really as doctors is to try and find the aggressive types before they become incurable. And that is what early detection is all about. It's really no different in principle to what we do for women in terms of pap smears um, for cervical cancer or mammograms uh, as part of the breast screen program, trying to find you know, cervical cancer or breast cancer uh, the more aggressive types before uh, they become incurable. That's what we want to do with prostate cancer. And, and one of the main points I'd like to sort of drive home today is that there is a real window um, or, or target group, I should say, of men that should really be thinking about early detection. Um, we can talk about what that means in a minute. And that target group is, is men between 50 and 70. That really is whichever guidelines, clinical guidelines, which are evidence-based that you happen to look at, 
Uh, there'll be a few variations on that theme, but really the, the main theme is, is 50 to 70. Okay, I fall between 50 and 70. I'm listening to this conversation right now. I say, all right, I'll take on board what you doctors are saying. What is an appropriate engagement with the issue? How do we go about this? Yeah, so that's the perfect question. And the answer is a discussion with your GP. So men in that age group should be seeing their GPs essentially on an annual basis just for general checkups regardless because whether we like it or not and no matter how healthy we'd like to think we are, unfortunately that's when disease can, you know, start to hit us and it doesn't have to be prostate, it could be heart disease and, and a myriad of other uh, conditions, blood pressure, cholesterol, so forth. So you should be seeing a GP on an annual basis in the first place. But when you see a GP, if you're in that age group, it would be very advisable to, at minimum, have a discussion with your GP about early detection of prostate cancer. And that discussion should include whether or not to get a simple blood test called a PSA, PSA, which stands for prostate-specific antigen. And it's no different to getting, uh, in terms of uh, the effect on, on you as a patient, it's no different to getting a, a blood test for cholesterol or a full blood count, uh, whatever it might be. It is a simple blood test. And that's the discussion that we want people to have. Now, this is worth pausing and engaging on for a moment, Jeremy. When people are engaging with their fear around this, the worst nightmare is, yeah, so I went in to get my blood pressure taken with the GP. I mentioned prostate. And next thing I know, I was bent over on a bench and uh, I could hear the snap of rubber gloves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be very clear here, the first intervention is as simple as a little prick on your finger, right? So, look, this, this is a bit of a, a changing area in, in as much as in the past, uh, we were always very much uh, in favour of uh, general practitioners performing a rectal examination. And the reason for that with regard to prostate is because the prostate gland sits immediately in front of the rectum. So you can actually feel part of the prostate gland um, when you do a rectal examination. Mm. Uh, what we've found more recently um, is that it's perhaps not necessary strictly for GPs to be performing the rectal examination. That is something that can, uh, at least uh, in the current NH and MRC guidelines, be left to the specialist doctor if necessary. With regard to prostate, I should point out there, there are other reasons for doing rectal examinations, um, blood in the, in the stool or, or bowel motions, for example. That's a whole different story. But if in terms of if we're just focused on uh, early detection of prostate cancer, the GP is not obliged, in fact, to do a rectal examination, um, but the specialist doctor such as myself is. And the reason for that is that we do it, uh, whether we like it or not, we do it all day, every day. And so we get pretty good at feeling what the prostate should feel like, um, GPs have to cover the entire gamut of medical conditions and is therefore much more difficult for them to get a really solid experience of what feels normal and what feels abnormal. Um, and on top of that, the rectal examination is notorious uh, for not necessarily being a particularly accurate way of assessing the prostate gland. Uh, and that's something else that we should be talking about is, is how we have brand new type of imaging, uh, which when done properly has really revolutionised uh, how we diagnose 
prostate cancer, and that's called an, a prostate MRI. We can we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah, I'd like to, but just to clarify, if I can use a random breath test analogy, right? And you're driving down the highway and not everyone gets pulled over. Some keep going through. If you do get pulled over, you'll be blowing in the bag. If I can use that analogy, the new PSA blood test is about deciding who is okay to continue and who gets pulled over into that lane and has to blow in the bag. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Um, It's a simple blood test. And if it comes back as normal, uh, then chances are uh, nothing further needs to be done. Drive on. Well, drive on until two years later is is the answer. So two years later, uh, you need to get pulled over again and uh, have another blood test. So again, going back to the evidence-based guidelines uh, that exist right here in Australia, uh, that is to have a discussion with your GP about PSA testing. And if it's normal, then you need only have it done every two years. Again, we have no different to other screening tests for other cancers, you know, whether it's a, a you know, faecal uh, blood test or the mammogram that we talked about. There's obviously, once you've had it done once and it's and it's all clear, you don't just forget about it for the rest of your life. You do need to have it done on a some kind of regular basis and for prostate we think uh, two years is, is reasonable and rob as we discussed in the last episode while nobody springs out of bed in the morning hoping that they're going to require a rectal exam if it does come to that it's actually quite a small price to pay for either peace of mind or intervention on something that could do you serious damage oh absolutely and as jeremy says you know done done by urologist specialist like himself very quick, uh, very straightforward, and really, it's not a big deal. Um, but I think by the time you come to that point now, you know, you'll know that the PSA test was had, had precipitated some uh, attention to the prostate. You're going to need to have it done, and it's no big deal when you get there. Perhaps just to, to Jeremy, the people particularly that one looks at in, or if they come along uh, with the family history, what, what would you like to say about family history in terms of whether you should be concerned or more or less. Sure. Yeah, no, good point, Rob. Um, so family history um, is certainly a risk factor, well-known risk factor for prostate cancer. So um, if you have particularly a father, brother or uncle, grandfather who has certainly had prostate cancer, and particularly if they were diagnosed relatively young, by which I mean in their 50s and 60s, um, then you you yourself are at increased risk um, of having a a more aggressive type of, of prostate cancer yourself. But but again, there are shades of grey here because, as you said at the outset, Robin, you're absolutely right, most men uh, who are in their 70s and 80s actually have a, a prostate cancer uh, in their prostate. In other words, given it's the majority of, of men, you could therefore define it as being normal. However, those prostate cancers, are the vast majority of them are harmless. They just sit there. So just this is the the teasing out that we have to do is that there are harmless prostate cancers and thankfully that's the majority, but there is a very significant minority of aggressive prostate cancers uh, which are potentially lethal. And again, they're the ones we want to focus on. And so if your family history is of the more aggressive type where your father, for example, was diagnosed, let's say, 58 years of age, you know, had to have his prostate removed because it was aggressive and so forth, then uh, that is a is a part of the history we as 
your doctor definitely want to know about. So, Jeremy, then let's walk through the worst case scenario or not the worst case scenario, but a, a worrying scenario. So I've done the right thing. I've had my blood test. The blood test has said, listen, you better go and see a specialist. The specialist says, I'm a bit worried about what's going on in there. The next step is I go for this MRI, is it? Yeah, that's right. So this is where uh, things have really been revolutionised. And this is just in the last um, handful of years. Previously, and I can totally understand men's worry about uh, getting a PSA test because not only do you have to put up with a rectal examination, which has, has been commented and it's not, not such a huge deal, but what's potentially worse than that is that the next step would have been a prostate biopsy. This is in the past where uh, needles are literally inserted through the rectum directly into the prostate. Now, I don't know of... Uh, a worse form of torture that you could get that, uh, than doing that. And no. you can understand men's reluctance to go down this pathway when that is the next step after getting an elevated uh, PSA blood test. Thankfully, that is no longer necessary because of prostate MRI. So it's only in the last few years that um, MRI has become really focused on the prostate gland such that we can read it accurately we know when uh, cancer is present. Now, uh, the, the only caveat, of course, is that the prostate MRI really does need to be read by an experienced uh, radiologist. But when that occurs, um, it is extremely useful because when the MRI comes back as all clear, not showing any sign of cancer in the prostate, then the, in the vast majority of times, we, that man can avoid a biopsy altogether. And that's a huge difference because that will happen probably about half the time. So uh, we know from previous uh, studies that uh, with, with elevated, elevated PSAs that were followed by biopsies, about half of the men didn't have cancer. So you can reduce enormously the number of uh, unnecessary and invasive biopsies that are performed by simply getting an MRI. So that's the first advantage. The second advantage is that if the MRI does show what looks like a cancer on the scans, then clearly that man does need a biopsy to check if, in fact, that is cancer. But, but more importantly, when we do the biopsy, we can very precisely target that lesion or that spot on the scan with our biopsy needle such that uh, we can get an accurate diagnosis every time. And that is a, a huge step forward because in the past, when we did biopsies, we were literally just randomly taking samples from all around the prostate. We couldn't, until MRI, we could not reliably see prostate cancer on any form of imaging. Now we can. So it's a huge step forward. And for that reason, has um, only last year, in fact, entered uh, clinical guidelines as uh, a standard part of the workup um, for diagnosing um, or allowing us to say that there is no prostate cancer present. The other thing I want to point out uh, with in terms of biopsy, as I, I sort of painted a fairly gruesome picture, is that the biopsy itself has also changed hugely. And we know certainly in Victoria um, from the uh, data that's been produced by the Movember uh, Prostate Cancer Registry that um, the majority of men are having prostate biopsies which are not conducted via the rectum. 
Instead, they're either under a general anaesthetic or an effective local anaesthetic, uh, and they're going through the skin behind the scrotum called the perineum. So it's called a transperineal biopsy. Now that's uh, very uh, another huge step forward because the main problem with doing, taking biopsies through the rectum, apart from the discomfort and, and, and potentially embarrassment of it, is that there is a significant, albeit small, but significant risk of uh, severe infection, uh, which you can imagine if you're passing needles through the wall of the rectum into the prostate gland, you can potentially seed uh, the prostate and, and its bloodstream with bacteria. Now, when we go through the skin, instead, we avoid all of those rectal bacteria, which are, are there in the rectum. And as such, the chance of a serious infection is practically zero. And we've published multiple times uh, to show this. So there's... I guess in summary, what I'm trying to say is that literally in the last handful of years, there have been such huge advances um, in how we perform early detection of prostate cancer that the downsides uh, are melting away uh, and the upside of getting an early diagnosis such that we can save lives is much more attractive than it used to be. I and the listeners are no doubt welcoming every word that you've just said because that is great news and it explodes a lot of the mythology. But for the purpose of the exercise, I want to continue down the logic of a worst case scenario. So if I have Swiss cheesed it, I've been through all of that process so far and you sit me down in your office and say, Aaron, sorry, the news is bad. You have an aggressive cancer and we need to have a surgical intervention. What are my likely outcomes? There is a lot of fear wrapped up in the idea around erectile function, around urinary function. And yep. of course, our whole manhood's tied up in that part of the world. So is there any good news in that part? Uh, you mentioned surgical treatment, and, and surgical treatment is certainly the most common way we treat prostate cancer, but, uh, mm. but it is certainly worth mentioning that radiotherapy is the alternative uh, method of, of curative treatment. So surgical removal of the prostate or radiotherapy, and that can take various forms, are the two standard treatments. Now, the bad news, as you point out uh, quite correctly, is that quite often, uh, there are substantial side effects to those treatments. And, and, and this is really gets to the, the nub of why it's so important that we make an accurate diagnosis in the first place because we do not want to be subjecting men to unnecessary side effects unless we absolutely have to. What I mean by that is if we find a prostate cancer that is low-grade or harmless or extremely unlikely to cause that man harm in his expected lifetime, we should not be treating that man. And that's that's something that, again, in the past, uh, unfortunately happened all too often. Uh, in some places still does happen where over-treatment occurs, unnecessary treatment of men with the, with the harmless types of prostate cancer. And, and in the end, uh, we really break that first Hippocratic oath of the first do no harm uh, because likely we're causing more harm than good in those patients. But the reverse is true when we have a young man, by which I mean, let's say a bloke who's, like I said, 58 years of, years of age, he's sexually active, but he has a prostate cancer which can potentially kill him. Now, if we can find that cancer early enough and treat it with either surgery or radiotherapy, 
then we are able to cure that disease, but there will likely be potential side effects. Now, you mentioned erectile dysfunction. That's by far the commonest side effect um, of any kind of curative treatment of prostate cancer, whether it's surgery or radiotherapy. And that, unfortunately, is a result of the anatomy. So the way the prostate is situated in the body is such that it sits smack bang in the middle of a whole bunch of very important pelvic organs between the bladder, the rectum, the urethral sphincter, which is what allows us to be continent of urine. And it runs right between the two nerves which supply the penis with erectile function. So even when we perform what we call a nerve-sparing prostatectomy, we keep the nerves intact, uh, we, we leave them alone, um, but even when we remove the prostate, we still have to peel the prostate away from those nerves. And we think that in doing so, those very fragile nerves can still be harmed, and that's why there is a relatively high chance of erectile dysfunction uh, when we perform surgery. And, and the same is true for radiotherapy because, of course, those same nerves can receive a dose of radiation, which can harm them as well. The good news on that otherwise fairly bleak front is that there are very effective treatments for erectile dysfunction uh, in that situation. So you, most people will, will be familiar with um, medications such as Viagra is obviously the probably the most well-known, but there are other ones which are uh, equally as effective. But there's also other treatments for erectile dysfunction which are very effective. Now, they may not enable a natural spontaneous erection, so you have to obviously augment them with the treatment, uh, and it might involve an injection, for example, um, or using a device uh, to engorge the penis and, and create, I guess, an artificial erection. But they feel the same and they can function the same as a spontaneous erection in terms of having intercourse. And one of the things I want to point out on that is that you do not lose sensation of the penis uh, with any prostate cancer treatments. It does not involve the nerves which supply uh, sensation to the penile skin. That's quite a different nerve supply to the nerves which supply erectile function of the penis. So, for example, men, even men who are unable to get a full erection or, even, or possibly even a partial erection after they've had treatment of prostate cancer, they uh, often can still achieve an orgasm. And that's because they're still able to feel all the normal sensations of sexual stimulation. Does that include ejaculatory function? Yeah, so ejaculation um, cannot occur after uh, prostatectomy. And that's because the tubes uh, which carry the semen have, have to be cut in terms of removing uh, the prostate. So orgasm is experienced without ejaculation. It's what we call a dry orgasm. And some, it's interesting, actually, some men uh, actually report a more intense orgasm for some reason. We don't quite know why that is, mm. but certainly men often still experience it. A remarkable conversation, and I like to think that I'm well-read and enlightened, and yet I live with one of these things every day and knew almost nothing of what you just explained. I realise how busy you are and how in demand you are, but I do hope that we have the opportunity to speak further in the future. 
because that was extremely illuminating. And I think not all good news, not all bad news, but certainly some accurate information that will be treasured by everyone who hears it. Thank you so much for being with us, Jeremy. It's a pleasure, Aaron. I'd love to come back and do it again uh, if, if the opportunity arises. You got some smart mates, Rob. Absolutely. You can see why uh, Jeremy was uh, was a, a top pick for me to, to come uh, because he communicates so well and uh, is so has such deep knowledge in the area. And there's lots more to be said about you know various treatments and outcomes. And there is good news in there for sure. And I I think that the message is to encourage men to think about this and if they are concerned, talk to their doctor and uh, move ahead uh, because you know it, it might just. Uh, you know, save your life. Uh, and there's uh, so much now that can be done to avoid uh, unnecessary interventions, as Jeremy said. So there's, there's more good news in that, in what you just heard, I think, than bad news. There's a lot of good news there. No question. And I'm struck by the irony that while in many ways we inherit what our dads and grandfathers went through, the actual way we'll be treated if we get that inheritance is really benefiting from the modern times that we live in. And maybe that's one of the key takeaways of today. Professor Rob McLaughlin, our regular doctor in the house, thank you for being with us. Jeremy Grummet, Associate Professor, thank you very much for being with us as well. We will reconvene this conversation in the not too distant future. And for you listeners, if there's something in that conversation that has sparked a follow-up question from you, please get in contact with us and we will put it to the doctors on your behalf so that you get the very highest quality information. Thank you both. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but before we go, let's share a bit of correspondence sent to The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. Always welcome. And I have to say, we're getting a few requests coming through for Shed in the Spotlight as well. So watch this space on that. We'll be in touch if you have corresponded to The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. But this is a ripper that gave me a real lift this week. Says, uh, hi, Aaron and team. From the central coast of New South Wales, you minor beach men's shed incorporated. So far, I've listened to all the broadcasts to date. And having just finished listening to episode two of series two with Costa, the gardener, of course, really interesting content from the start of the broadcast right through to the close. Moves well, lots of humor, variety of topics, and noticeably the presenters getting well out of their normal fields. Ex-politicians getting into cars trucks and rollers, gardening celebrity across the sporting referees and mental health, medics with bad habits, etc. Very informative and easy listening. So well done and keep up the good work to Team Shed Wireless. Thank you and keep up the good work to Vic Brown and the team there at Umina Beach Men's Shed, a beautiful part of the world. The only thing that could make it better is being in a men's shed down there and mercifully David, unlike our Victorian counterparts, despite a few scares in New South Wales, most of the sheds remain open in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and WA. Yeah, apart from Victoria, most of the sheds are opening. We are seeing you know, some hesitations with some of the blokes getting back into the sheds. Some guys are choosing to play it safe and you know, so they should. But yeah, we're getting back. We're probably at about 
uh, 70% capacity around the country now, Aaron. And I didn't forget you, Northern Territory, ACT or Tasmania. <laughs> it was just going in order of size. <laughs> Thank you to Dennis Lilly and his management team who were extremely patient and cooperative in bringing that chat to you earlier this episode. Debra Menshed, legends up there, Professor Rob McLaughlin and Associate Professor Jeremy Grummet. I think you probably got a sense listening to them what heavy hitters they are, but let me tell you, you wouldn't want to be paying for the level of access that we got to those guys. They are some of the best in the world at what they do, and we were really lucky to be able to access their expertise in the way that we did. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Rip. Thank you, Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team. And to you, David, very nice to have you back. Thanks, Aaron. We'll see you next episode. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates, even if they've never seen a shed, through email, newsletters, word of mouth, ring a mate and give him the tip. Maybe your wife might even like it. We love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at menshed.net or just head to the AMSA website, www.menshed.org and see what's going on with The Shed online while you're there. It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed.